Storygram Network. Hosting for this podcast is generously provided by Transistor at Transistor.fm. Hi, my name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. So it's not about food, and it's not about weight. What is it about? Everything else. Because it's never, ever about food or weight. Never, ever. Not even. One time. Not ever. Ever, ever. Hello, everyone. This is Lori Lee from It's Not About Food podcast. And uh, today... We are talking about sexuality. Ah! <laughs> I always think it's very brave when somebody will talk about that. Same way with like spirituality. Because ah! in this culture, we're always afraid to talk about all this kind of stuff. But anyways, the front of the card has the goddess is kind of shaking her booty, dancing, if you will. And the little deer power animal is doing the same. It's kind of moving around and sort of in herself is how I look at it. So the back of the card reads, our relationship with food, body size, and sexuality are complex. By exploring the link between negative body image and sexual shame, we can begin to respect and love our own unique beauty and then hold our bodies and sexuality as sacred. We can then reclaim our sexuality for ourselves as the pure, precious, and honorable force it is. And what a wonderful way to put that and what a different way to look at that, especially in the culture that we live in. That, you know, we get to hold our bodies and our sexuality as sacred. That is an idea that has long been coming to all of us, women and men, in the culture that we live in. And I feel that, again, the way that we're taught to think of our bodies in this culture is, or I was taught, let me just talk about that, was as a commodity to be bought and sold as a girl in San Antonio, Texas in the 50s, my only commodity was my body. That's about all I had. That was going to be my ticket to money and a family and uh, a home and my well-being was my body. And so it took a long time to let that go and think about, no, you know, it's myself. It's myself that's going to make this make or break this and because I wanted my relationship with my own body to be a certain way so that it could catch a man I spent a lot of time not developing all the rest of myself and it really took a long time to recover from those ideas but I love that that to think about it as our sexuality is the pure and precious and honorable force is so much different than how I was raised. And I even see girls today go into schools and talk about body hatred and disordered eating. And I can still see that many of them are very much wrapped in that idea that they need to be sexual in order to be liked. And it's not really about their own whether they want to be sexual or not, it's in order to get something 
So we have really bought and sold ourselves for many years, and it'll be a great day when we don't do that anymore. So I'm so glad to have Caitlin here today with us to talk about what she's doing in this neck of the woods and what this swimming pool that we're swimming in, this body image and sexuality and disordered eating and all the ways that we try to cope with our feelings. So I'll turn this over to her and introduce her and what's she doing? Why did she pick this card and what's up with her? Thank you, Morley. Mm-hmm. I think this card chose me. <laughs> I, I have more of an intuitive process with decks where I have learned, been taught to hold the deck and sort of put my energy into it with an open intention to receive something. So that's what I did. And I picked this card and my first thought was, oh, this isn't very spiritual. (laughs) (laughs) I know we're not taught that it is right. But you know, what's funny is it's sort of like upon first glance. And then I did a little bit of writing about it and made some connections that, and even as you were speaking just now, it makes me realize what a powerful force sexuality is. And even, you know, you could think of it from a spiritual place. When we come into like right relationship with our sexuality, it's powerful and in it, it's freeing to our spirit. So I think it's perfect. I'm so happy to embrace the subject So it comes up in my practice. I would say I have probably 70% women in my practice. And that could also be because I specialize in eating disorder work and not just eating disorder work, the whole spectrum of people healing from the toxic culture and (laughs) all of these things. So with that, I get the opportunity and the deep honor of watching women, but also men or even people who identify as women or people who identify as men heal in a way that changes their relationship, I think, with desire. So sexuality to me, like that was the word that I thought about in terms of how it shows up for me in the room is helping people learn how to connect with desire again. Wow, I love that. That desire, sexuality, and then what is your desire? And then it doesn't really have to be bought and sold, does it? Right, so being bought and sold is that, how am I perceived, you know, that very like constricted, very like uh, masculine kind of energy that we get stuck in. Uh, I have to look a certain way. I have to be perceived a certain way, whether by men or just society in general, right? Just to get ahead. Yeah. And so when we start to kind of explore from a place of more like internal curiosity, and it could be coming from the place of what do you desire with food and how have you left very little room for that with your relationship with food? or been scared of what you desire from food. It can start there, but then it can really blossom. And it also kind of comes out too in the way that people think about, this is really common in my work. What kind of movement do you desire? When your body wants to move, what's a way that you feel pleasure moving your body? Which is so different than how can you get those pounds off? (laughs) 
completely different. Right. We're moving from a place that's super analytical, super masculine energy, very logical, thinking about the body, thinking about food, thinking about exercise, and trying to come into a different place. I mean, I'm kind of talking about archetypes here. Like I'm kind of using more like Jungian language a little bit, but like how do we bring in more of the feminine energy and how do we move towards this softer place that's more about desire and lovingness, like a kind of a, a loving energy? Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is what I had high hopes for the sort of the yoga idea maybe 20 years ago or so when it first started to be really popular in the culture that we live in or in America. And it's an ancient art. I mean, it's an ancient movement, but we discovered it here (laughs) as we do. But anyway, and then, but it got so weird so fast that it became about how many times did you go to yoga today? And was it really hot? And did you wear like hardly any thing and you know did you have wheatgrass before it was this whole it like turned it into this whole money making crazy thing instead of this sacred art of learning who you are and how to be in your body and can you breathe through this posture and can you breathe through this and even though teachers were still teaching you you know, how to be grateful when you started and how to say thank you to yourself when you ended, there was still a lot of pressure on you to be a yoga body. Yeah, very much so. I think it's shifting more, but I mean, I have a long history with yoga and practice of yoga and I've watched it change over time from very male dominated. And even the teachers who were following in those lineages, they're sort of the ones who were revered had very masculine kinds of bodies, very like lean and tall and yeah, strong. Yeah. Even though they were teaching something that was very loving and flowing, there was still that picture in (laughs) front of you of a very thin body. So that's hard to dismiss. But it's changing. I think it's changing more now, the leadership in the communities and I think the types of bodies that are allowed to be there. Yeah. And I think also that everybody has started to claim it as their own, that I still want to go and do this wonderful exercise for me. And... I'm just going to bring the body that I have to the class. And if anybody has a problem with that, then whatever about that. But yeah, you're right. And so if we go back to the card where, how do you think is exploring the link between negative body image and sexual shame? How do we go from that to the respect and love of our own unique body with not much help around us telling us that it's, first of all, that it's doable, but that it's even okay. Yeah, it it seems like there's something about the holding space of therapy that is providing something different for people, maybe a softer conversation, more curiosity, less rules. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. More questions than answers. I really try to invite my clients to keep in mind that it's their space. And I think also try to you know, maybe introduce questions to them that 
are novel that are not perpetuating like the dominant ideas that might still be out there. And I think that's different a little bit rather than being told a way to be or given kind of like a frame to try to fit into having someone get curious with you about your own experience is very different that I think gives a little bit more room for investigation. If I'm ashamed of my body, why? Like, where did that come from? Where did those messages, how did they get in? You know, we're not born that way. So where did they come from? And just being really curious to let them unpack some of that stuff and start to maybe remove it from them, you know, a little (laughs) like kind of taking off pieces of clothing, like, oh yeah, somebody put this on me and it, and I don't like it. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Yeah. When we have a statistic of that, so many men and women have been sexually abused or inappropriately talked to or touched in a way. And, you know, it's just, it's hard to think we ever get out of this quagmire of pain and struggle and shame and guilt and to claim this beautiful part of us that has been so tainted. Yes. And I think you're talking about something more specific within what shows up in the rooms. I certainly have had clients disclose to me their trauma histories. And I think even that is something that I'm really careful to ask whether they want to go there. You know, you're telling me something really vulnerable and painful. Is it a focus that you want to have in your therapy? Do you want to look at that more? How do you feel about it? I let them kind of decide whether they want to use maybe certain tools that I have to work through trauma, but it's up to them whether that's of interest. Yeah, it's a choice. Yeah. And I think For those who are interested, I've seen really beautiful work be done. I use cognitive processing therapy in a situation like that where someone says, you know, I've talked about this, but I haven't worked through it and I want to. I use cognitive processing therapy, which was originally developed for PTSD for veterans. And I was actually introduced to it through a training with Montanito, which is one of the recovery programs who they made it seem like a good fit for my practice because I wasn't really ready to jump into getting trained in EMDR. And it was something that they were able to use with people in a short-term way where if they didn't have time to get through all the resourcing that EMDR requires, they could still use CPT to have an effect on the trauma narrative. So what's kind of an easier way to tell somebody if they're having a loop-de-loop memory or thing about something that had happened a long time that they can set their mind on another little groove about that? So what I like about, and I've done this with clients who aren't doing the full course of CPT, I've used this reframing with them as well because I think it's really helpful because so much of trauma work in the past was about going back into the narrative. And I think since then we've learned how harmful that can be. So for clients, I try to help them identify 
yes, this thing happened to you. And what do you think the impact of it was? What were the beliefs that could have been created based on that happening to you that you developed about your belief about yourself, your world, your sense of safety, your sense of trust in other people? And we kind of make a little list of some of the things that they can identify. I love that. So that really helps, I think, put some perspective on some of the cognitive processes that are happening. And also it can help people understand why they might be having certain situations come up that are eliciting their trauma memories. And then if they want to do like more work from that to work on the beliefs themselves, we do. But I think that's one kind of short answer to that question. No, I love it. And I think it's certainly so much more accessible for people, especially if they're just like, why do I keep getting the same person in my life? Or why am I constantly triggered by fill in the blank? And then you go, how could you have not once you look at where it all came from? That's so hard. Because again, we're kind of talking about shame, right? People, yeah. when they see themselves in patterns tend to blame themselves And it's so much bigger than that. So much bigger. But I think it also gives them that little separation enough that they can get in between themselves and say the behavior or the thoughts or the shame and say, again, like I've been wearing this shame coat for many years and I think I'm going to take it off now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. I think the first step sometimes is just being able to see things in black and white on a piece of paper. It's a different kind of awareness. You know, I was really brought up in my graduate school training with a lot of mindfulness practices. They were really just infused into my program. And I think that's a big part of what I'm always trying to help people do is sort of separate from thoughts. You know, these are thoughts and of course they have an origin that makes sense. But do they make sense now? Right, exactly. We are smart cookies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we were smart little girls to come up with some of the ways that we've had to navigate through things and keep ourselves safe and maybe separate or not let the tiger eat us. And it's, I don't know, some of those things to come to the place where you don't really need to do that anymore or you don't need to believe that anymore. And you can let that thought go and know that it's a thought, it's not reality, is such a breakthrough moment, break free. Well, and you're even naming the really important part, which is to be almost in gratitude for it, right? Like if we're just in shame, why, how could I keep thinking this way? It's so hard to access like the wisdom that this belief was there because it was working for you. It was keeping you alive. It was helping you in some way. And sometimes this isn't so easy to do, but to have some appreciation for those survival skills. For sure. And for yourself, for coming up with something that worked for however long it did. Yeah. I think there's often a lot of, you know, when people can access that, there's often a real felt sense of sadness that comes up. Yeah, for sure. A lot of grief, right? Like for themselves. Storygram Network. Welcome to One Media, One Media. I'm. It's a place I like to call The Bleed. My name is Laura Lee. 
and this is It's Not About Food. The art of being yay isn't just something he developed. Storygram Network. That whole part of me was lost, or I don't even remember that part because I had to just bear down and get through it. Yeah. What are you doing these days? So you're doing individual clients, I assume on Zoom. I see people in person also. Mm-hmm. Good. And are you doing groups at all or anything like that? No, it's really just individual work is my sweet spot. I had a foray with teaching DBT. Loved that when I could do it, but I have two little ones. And so I really prioritize what I focus on right now. Of course. But I love DBT and it certainly informs my work quite a bit. And it actually, I was thinking about DBT because one of the tools from DBT that's related to this conversation, when people start to get in touch with their pleasure and their desires, the hardest thing is to try to manifest that in their world, right? (laughs) To ask for that. If they need something from other people, if they need support from them, if they need them to watch the kids so they can do something, if they need them to please them in a different way, they have no language. No. For me, being the age that I am or that the time that I grew up, it's you just got another boyfriend. (laughs) You just didn't want to talk about it. change it up change it up just leave that person it's too hard to talk about maybe the next person I won't have to talk about and they'll just know somehow yeah and that's what I love about DBT because I think the interpersonal skills that are taught in DBT they're just so foundational in learning the mechanics of what works And so I love bringing that in and teaching that to people. And I don't even usually get the worksheets out. We just talk through it and do role plays and stuff like that about how to use the language. It also, I think, is helpful in thinking about, okay, so if I'm getting these really great skills and I'm using them and I'm still not getting what I need, then maybe I can make a really wise decision about this person. Is this relationship hopeless? Have I tried what I wanted to try to make it better and made my part of it really feel good. And I'm proud of how I communicate. And if I've done that, am I getting met with less than what I'm giving? It helps people, I think, make that choice instead of just feeling like, okay, I got to jump to the next person and hope that it gets better. Right. It's so much more of a powerful position to come from that really strong place within you and not making the other person bad at all. It's just, you know, apparently we're not on the same page on these things. Yeah, definitely. And what, just for the people out there that don't know what that means, what is DBT? Yeah, DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. And it was developed by Marsha Linehan, who is a very famous therapist and teacher at this point. And it includes four modules. It was originally developed for people who had very intense emotional experiences and some of them who were chronically suicidal. And it was this set of skills that were meant to help people improve their quality of living. And you know, kind of stop living in a very reactive, chaotic state. And that includes our relationships. And the core beginning teaching is mindfulness. And so mindfulness is taught first. And then the other three modules are interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, 
and emotion regulation. When I was first was taught DBT by my supervisor when I was an intern, I just felt like these are just really good instructions for living. I know. know. (laughs) Why don't we have these? Yeah. Yeah. It's a crapshoot whether your parent knows how to do this themselves or how to teach it to you. And yeah, I think that little babies should come with a sheet that say, this baby needs these things. Well, how lucky are your kids to have some of these skills that I didn't have? And I don't know if you had them or not, but just to have some of these skills that are so baffling to the rest of us. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, as I'm sure you know, it's easier to teach something than practice it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, certainly not perfect, but the knowledge is all in there. Yes. Yeah, my son has grown, but I've often told him, you know, I know exactly what to do with your life. Me, not so sure about mine. (laughs) If you just follow my directions, you'd be fine. (laughs) Yes, yes. A lot of humility, I think, helps. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so can you read this last part of the card? Today I will practice. Today, I will practice realizing it is not my size that limits my sexual experience, but rather it is my shame and fear. The same feelings that are so often at the core of my struggle with food and weight. I will experiment with looking at my body, the expression of my sexuality and my sexual desires as natural, pure, precious, and sacred. Boy, don't we just wish this for every living being as they're walking around on the earth? And I love the first part of it is our practice realizing it's not my size that limits my sexual experience. That so many of my clients, and I'm sure your clients, just, well, when I lose weight, you know, I'll be able to step into that part. But right now I'm not going to, or when I get this eating disorder handled or when there's always a win and, you know, may or may not ever come that win. Yeah. It reminds me of just all the noise that we have to sort of clear away in order to make space for our bodies and like our energy. Like it's so much easier to just get all small, right? Get small with everything, (laughs) your feelings, your your desire, just have only this much space for it. I mean, it seems easier, but I don't really think it's like actually easier. It's horrible. Well, it feels more in control, doesn't it? When it's smaller. Yes. I only have to control this much. This I'm holding up my hands as I do this. I think about my work with clients and how much of it is about boundaries and really learning how to set boundaries in their world with what they're trying to claim space for. You know, that I'm really trying to love myself and not diet and not hate my body. And so therefore, I can't be around people who want to talk about dieting (laughs) or maybe I tell them I'm on a journey right now and that type of subject is really hard for me. I saw a cute bumper sticker the other day. It said something like, unless you met, you met a famous person, no one wants to hear about your workout. (laughs) (laughs) At the gym, I didn't put that part. Like, unless you met a famous person at the gym, no one wants to hear about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I had a client the other day who was telling me about some personality that wrote a book about losing all this weight and keeping it off. And I just said to her, do you think you would want to hang out with that person? (laughs) (laughs) Like, would you want to be friends with them? And she was like, no, no. And I said, why? And she said, because they're so rigid. I said, yeah, this person sounds like, yeah, it would be really hard to be around them. I know. I was traveling last week and I was in a breakfast bar, you know, at the hotel. And it, there was this just constant chatter of, oh, I shouldn't have this. Or do you, you know, do you have this gluten-free? Is, do you have anything like this fat-free? And it's just like, this is a breakfast bar at, you know, a Hilton. So it is what it is, you know, <laughs> so yeah. probably not. And just that I'm not okay unless I get the perfect food in order to eat so that I will lose weight before lunch (laughs) or something. Yeah. I mean, it's really pervasive. Yeah. It's in the culture. It's in the generation. Like most of my clients are working with many generations of feeling shame about their body for whatever reason. And it's bigger than them. And it just, it's really... I think that's why right now when people are doing work on accepting their body, there's a way that I think social media can be helpful when people are plugged into the right places. And I try to guide them to podcasts in different places because we need to amplify the voices of sanity. (laughs) That's right. We do. I mean, we have to hear more of that to drown out the rest of the bull to be honest. Of course. And we need people who are strong enough and brave enough to stand up and go, you know, I don't really want to talk about that. What books have you read lately? Or did you see a good movie? Or what's, boy, it's beautiful outside. Let's go for a walk. Yeah. I love Lindy West's work. She has a great book called Shrill. I've given to clients. She's amazing. Virgie Tovar, I just heard her speak and I was like, girl, you just vibrated my world in the best way ever. Like, she's amazing. She is amazing. The second woman's big march. I went to the first one in DC. I just had to be with those people doing that. And then the second one, I went to the one in San Francisco and I'm walking along with my little sign and everything. And who do I run into is Virgie. And I was like, I'm not worthy. (laughs) She's like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm seeing you. And anyway, so we had a nice little talk to each other, but yeah, she's doing the greatest work. She is on that soapbox, just yelling it out. Beautiful. She's amazing. I mean, that's what really gives me hope. I I know that it can feel like the dominant culture still needs a lot of time to change, but it depends on where you're looking, right? If you're following the right people, it just can really change your day and your perspective, I think. And if you're drowning in a sea of people talking about diets and stuff, gosh, like what else are you going to do but succumb? Yeah. Get out of there. Yeah. No, I can remember the day that I came out of the closet about I'm not going to diet anymore and I'm not going to talk about your diet anymore either to my sister. And so beautifully and innocently, she said, what will we talk about? (laughs) I said, 
I don't know. Oh. There were a lot of silences. She was really trying hard. She knew I had an eating disorder, so she was going to try to do this thing. And, you know, it took a long time for us to be able to talk about something else other than we're bad if we eat this and good if we eat this and, you know, how much thinner we used to be. And maybe if we go on this diet, we'll lose, you know, start doing math. We'll lose 20 pounds by blah, blah, blah. It just was so crazy instead of what was going on with us as people. Yeah. I find that I can be mostly quiet and not take the bait when that comes up in public conversation. And I think if there was somebody that I didn't know well, and I found that to be a repetitive pattern with them, I probably would lose interest in spending time with them. Sure. But I do find that as a mom and having children that my mama bear comes out, you know, if somebody's trying to like impose food rules or something with my kids, I'm just like, nope. We're not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a huge shift right there, isn't it? I mean, I think that's a very wonderful thing. You get to choose what you're going to eat. You get to choose like the card. You get to choose what's sexuality, what's pleasure to you. You get to choose these things, which was news to me as a child. I didn't have any idea that was the way it could be good for you. So I am so honored and grateful that you were on today. Thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate you being on. Thank you for listening. And be sure and follow me on Patreon, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and it's not about food.com. Thanks.